My whole adult life, people have said, hey, man, you, you look just like Woody, or you remind me of Woody, and it used to really bother me, but then I just kind of stopped fighting it after a while. And when I found out that Mike was going to give that little jab to me this week, I asked our media guys to come up with a rebuttal, and here's what they came up with. I think Mike Lee makes a great Buzz Lightyear. How about you? Just don't tell him I said that. While Mike and Laura are away this weekend, they are celebrating their 35th wedding anniversary, so a big congrats to them. And as Mike said, uh, we're starting our brand new series this weekend, This is Worship. And you may have noticed on the side screens when you saw the title slide that we have a hashtag in front of it. And those of you who are on social media, you know what a hashtag is. And you might be wondering, so what's the deal with the hashtag? Well, at Hope, we love people where they are. And there's a lot of people on social media. Not everybody, but a lot of you are on social media. So we thought it'd be a cool thing as we start this new series to couple it with a social media campaign. And so we're going to ask you to help us launch that campaign today, right now. So if you have an Instagram account or a Twitter account or Facebook, I want you to take your phone out right now. Go ahead. It's not often a pastor lets you take your phone out and do things online when we're speaking, but go ahead and do that, and I want you to take a picture of the side screen. Go ahead and zoom in on that, take a picture, and post it to your site right now. I love that picture because it's like a mosaic of moments of worship in our life. So, yeah, that's cool. Look at all of you. Come on, do you guys have a life? What? No, this is great. If enough of us do this, we'll start trending. And if you don't know what trending is, don't worry about it. It's okay. But throughout this series, we'll want to ask you to continue to post online on your, on your social media sites. Post ideas, inspirational thoughts, inspirational pictures, inspirational quotes, or even everyday moments that you have used as a moment to worship God. And throughout this series, just post that to your site. Make sure that you always end it with hashtag this is worship. And then uh, when people kind of search for that, they can see all of these hundreds and maybe thousands of people from this crazy church called Hope Community Church that are just living their lives with a thought of worship. And even as I was kind of giving this kind of a dry run over the last couple weeks, I've got a Twitter account and I, I, I'm not a prolific Twitter. I don't do it that often, but I was just sort of trying this out to see how it would work for me. And to be honest, it was a little bit awkward at moments, just before I would hit that tweet button. But then I thought, you know, this is the good thing about this is it's, it's really kept my eyes open to seeing everyday moments as an opportunity to worship God. So when I say worship, what comes to mind? What images come to mind when I say that word worship? It's not, it's not a common word that we use in our everyday language and our discussions, but when I say worship, may, maybe some of you think of exactly this. Coming to church singing some songs to God, singing songs about God, that's worship. And then maybe for some of you, when you hear that word worship, you think of someone bowing down to an idol or burning incense to an idol. Or maybe you've seen those pictures of thousands upon thousands of Muslims gathered together at the end of their pilgrimage at Mecca and together in unison bowing their head, their forehead to the ground as they recite their prayers to the Prophet Muhammad. See, worship means many different things to many different people, and we're going to really unpack that word worship today and hopefully gain a new understanding of what it means. But to begin, I, I just wanted to kind of funnel it down to one simple little word. What is worship? Worship is wow. It's a wow moment. Or more specifically, it's, it's a response 
to a wow moment. And we all have those wow moments in life, don't we? And I think how we respond can actually be worship. I want to share just a few of those wow moments that I've experienced in life that God's given me the opportunity to experience. And some of them have happened as I've been in a church service, in a worship service, uh, even leading worship. As Mike said, I was a worship pastor for many years in Canada uh, for eight years in the Toronto area. And then my family and I moved to Africa to, to be a part of Watoto in Uganda, East Africa. And let me tell you, in those years that I was the worship pastor in Watoto, there was many wow moments. Africans love music. Africans love to sing. So you get a bunch of Christian Africans together, and they love to sing to God. I mean, it's loud. It's exciting. There's lots of movement, and it becomes contagious. And I don't know if you've ever seen me during a a worship time here at Hope, but if you've ever watched me, it's hard for me to stand still. But you spend seven and a half years with those incredible people, and it just becomes a part of you. So there was many wow moments there, but one I'll never forget was not actually in Watoto Church, but I was asked to be a part of a team that led worship at a Christian event that was held at the National Stadium in Kampala, Uganda. And at that event, we were able to lead 60,000 Ugandans together in worship. And to see that massive crowd and to hear that massive crowd lifting their voices to God it was breathtaking. It was awesome. That was a wow moment. But I've had just as many or maybe more wow moments, worship moments outside of church. I remember a time being in Banff, Alberta. I was skiing with one of my best friends. I loved to go big mountain skiing. And we were up at Lake Louise Mountain in Banff, Alberta, and we went to the very peak, the highest peak that you can ski. And we were standing uh, 10,000 feet above sea level, And we were about to drop into the back bowls of the mountain. Those of you who are skiers, you know the exhilarating feeling of that. And it was a beautiful sunny day. We were looking around, and I just said to my friend, I said, man, check this out. You could see clearly in the distance about 100 miles in any direction. And we were surrounded by majestic mountain peaks. And I was overwhelmed by the beauty of God, by the beauty of his creation. And it was actually a Sunday morning, and I wasn't in church but I felt like it was one of the most beautiful worship services that I'd been a part of. There was another time that I was fishing up in northern Minnesota with my father-in-law, and we were in the Boundary Waters, and it's, it's a, a chain of lakes where there is no power, there's, there's no power motors allowed, there's no cell towers. So when you go up there for a canoeing trip, a fishing trip, you are seriously out in the woods, in the wilderness. Kind of like that. Where the men are men and... No, anyway, I'll leave it there. <laughs> but I remember we were, one night we were out fishing, and we loved to fish, so the fish were biting, and so we stayed out there till well after dark. And then as we were paddling back to our campsite, miles back to our campsite, you could actually hear the paddles stroking through the water, and you could hear the loons calling out in the distance. It was beautiful. And all of a sudden, we could see shimmering lights on the water, and we're thinking, okay, there's no street lights. Where's that coming from? We look up, and it's as if God decided to surprise us with his beauty. And there was this amazing display of northern lights that went on for about 10 or 15 minutes. It was one of the coolest moments I've ever experienced. And it was a wow moment. But maybe the greatest wow moment, actually the greatest wow moments for me so far in my life, have been at the birth of my children. Standing in that delivery room three times, seeing my child, seeing that child, that life come into this world, And having a sense that God had given Don, my wife and I, this opportunity to be, in a sense, co-creators with him for that little life. I was overwhelmed in those moments by gratitude 
and I was actually overwhelmed by the presence of God. I sensed the presence of God in that delivery room. So what's, what's the connection here? What's the common thread between a crowd of 60,000 Africans raising their voice to God or me standing in the delivery room at the birth of my child? The connection is this, and this is where I want to start today, that for the believer, for the Christ follower, all of life is a sacred act of worship. All of life is a sacred act of worship. Not just the big moments, but even the everyday ordinary moments of our life can become extraordinary, extraordinary when we decide to live our life with a sense of awe, with a sense of understanding that we are always in the presence of God. But far too often we compartmentalize our lives, right? We have kind of the sacred parts of our life when we get together at church, when we go for small group, or we get together with Christian friends or family. And then we have our secular lives, going to work, taking the kids to school, doing our regular kind of weekly activities, going to the grocery store, and etc. But that's not how God sees it. See, to God, there's no difference between balancing the checkbook, heading in early to work, taking the kids to school, or doing your devotions or praying, or raking the leaves, or going to church, or raking the leaves again, or spending time with friends and family. There's no difference to him. It's all an act of worship, or at least... It can all be an act of worship. Because the truth is this. God created us to worship. He created us to worship. We all worship something. There's something inside of every one of us that's drawn to admire, drawn to admire someone or something that is bigger or better than us. We all worship different things if it's not God. I mean, for some of us, it's celebrities. There is no time in history that celebrities have been bigger than in today's world probably because of the internet, the globalization, the social media. I found out this week that Justin Bieber now has 34 million followers on Twitter. That's scary, right? And we've all met those people who are so fanatical about the people that they're following, the celebrities that they're into, that they begin to even resemble them. Have you seen them? They begin to talk like them or walk like them or act like them. They become fans, fanatical. But maybe for you, it's, it's not celebrities. Maybe for you, it's success that drives you. It's that internal desire, that incessant drive always for something bigger, better, that competitive drive for a new position, for a new company, for an unstoppable winning streak. It drives you. Or maybe for you, it's fitness. I mean, after all, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So we must take care of it. But fitness can easily go from a good thing into an obsession where we begin to idolize our health. We begin to idolize our human bodies. Or maybe for you, it's yourself. Maybe you think that you're the answer to everyone's problems. And if everyone would just listen to you, the world would be a better place. I mean, if I'm honest with you, I've even had those moments myself where I've become so self-absorbed, I've been so self-deceived, that I begin to live as though I was God's gift to humanity. And here's the truth. We all worship. The, the question is not if we will worship. The question is who or what we will worship. And the answer to that is so important because who or what we worship shapes us. It defines us. We start to take on the characteristics of the objects of our affection. So let me ask you a couple questions. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your time? What are the things that drive you? What ocup occupies your thoughts or your downtime? Most likely, whatever it is, is determining who you are, who you're becoming. 
And God created us, and he created us to worship him. And he knows that if we don't worship him, we're going to end up worshiping someone or something else, and that someone or something else, it's going to leave us unfulfilled, wanting more. So he not only creates us to worship, he takes it to a whole other level. He commands us to worship. God commands us to worship him. He commands us. Now, this is where many of us begin to squirm because our human nature is very independent. We don't like being given a command. We don't like being given a a directive because, let's face it, we want to be in charge. But I want to state the obvious. When God created us, he did not consult me. He did not consult you. The only discussion was among God, among the Trinity. God said, let us make man in our image in our likeness. And this whole idea of worship was so important to God that he included it in the Ten Commandments, written in stone. He wanted to make it abundantly clear just in case we thought there was any question in the matter, right? So I want us to take a look today at the first two of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, or you can follow along on the side screens. Starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Let me pause there for a second. Gary Vett, one of our pastors, he says this. God never asks anything from us until he tells us what he's done for us. Let that sink in for a moment. God never asks anything from us until he tells us what he's done for us. And that's exactly what's happening here at the beginning of this chapter. He is reminding them that he's the one, he's the God that brought them out of Egypt, he's their deliverer. And then he goes on to give them these commands. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, he wants to be number one. He wants to be the object of their affection, the object of our worship. Verse four, you shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything above or in the heavens above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So how are you doing so far? You know, maybe we're doing a mental checklist. Okay, how am I doing? Do I have anyone before God? Any gods before him? No, nope, I think I'm all right there. Have I carved any images or any idols lately? No, certainly haven't bowed down to any idols. I think I'm good. But then skip down to verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this. You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. See, silver or gold make shiny objects. And in our culture, we are surrounded by shiny objects. Now, they don't often come in the form of a little god or a little idol, but they come in the form of a new house, of a new car, of a new phone, of new jewelry, of a new iPad Air. What will they think of next? Or maybe even on our body, they come in the form, shiny objects, of new whiter teeth, of new younger, healthier looking skin, of an enhanced body, better fitness. Let's face it, we live in the most indulgent society in the world. And now there's not necessarily anything wrong with some of these things, with a new car or whiter teeth. But the endless desire for such things can quickly move from being blessings that God has given us to becoming the objects of our worship. Louis Giglio, a pastor and an author, he captures some of these thoughts so well in his book, Wired for the Life of Worship. And he says this, whatever you value most will ultimately determine who you are. If you worship money, you'll become greedy at the core of your heart. 
If you worship some sinful habit, that same sin will grip your soul and poison your character to death. If you worship stuff, your life will become material, void of eternal significance. If you give all of your praise to the God of you, you'll become a disappointing little God, both to yourself and to all those who trust in you. So worship is about becoming. So now maybe you're sitting there thinking, all right, if worship is about becoming and God is better than me, then if I worship God, I'm going to get better. So Doug, are you saying that worship is all about self-improvement? No, I'm not. Because self-improvement is about self. But worship is about giving worth to someone or something else. And in our case, about giving worth to God. See, that's what worship is. It's, it's giving adoration, devotion, or service to our God. And our current word, worship, comes from a very old English word that was used hundreds of years ago in England that was worthship. It was spelled with a T-H. Worthship. And that, used, that word was most often used to describe a commoner who was invited in the presence of royalty. And when they would come into the presence of royalty, once they were invited, they would approach the throne, they would kneel, they would take the hand of the king or queen, and they would kiss that hand in reverence. And that whole act of approaching, kneeling, bowing, and kissing in reverence was all an act of worship. Now, somewhere along the line, some, somewhere over the years, someone decided to take off the TH, probably because it doesn't quite roll off the tongue so well. I mean, try saying that a bit. Worship, worship. Can you imagine singing songs in church uh, all about worshiping? I mean, there, there'd be spit flying everywhere. So maybe it's good that they took off the TH, but I'm wondering if they lost the meaning. We lost the meaning of bringing worth, of ascribing worth. And even in the Bible, there's two primary words that are translated into our English word worship. The one similarly means to move forward, to bow down or fall down in adoration. And the other one means to serve a superior, to serve God. And that reminds me that all over our campuses this weekend, there have been people who have been worshiping God by serving us. Serving us as ushers and greeters and roadies and techies and small group leaders in Kid City and nursery workers. And they are worshiping God every bit as much as you and I who are here in the auditorium singing songs to God. Which begs the question, am I serving? Are you serving? But I want to make something clear. Worship does change us. We are improved as we worship, but it has nothing to do with self-improvement. It has everything to do with God because as we spend time in his presence, as we focus on him, he changes us. He transforms us into his likeness. So why is God worth our worship? Why is he worthy of our worship? Because he's God. Because he's holy. We worship God because he's holy. Look at Psalm 99, verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. And all over the Psalms, over 40 times in the book of Psalms alone, God is referred to as holy. And it's a common theme throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament. We actually sang it, I think, in two of our songs already today, that God is holy. Holy, holy, Lord Almighty. You know, all the earth will sing your praise. He is holy. So what does holy mean? It means two things, really. It means separate and it means completely pure. And God is separate from us. He is completely other than us. Not, he's not separate in distance. He is separate in nature because he is God. He is creator. He is sustainer, sovereign, savior, provider. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere, and he is here. 
He is completely loving, completely just, completely pure, completely merciful, and he is full of grace. Our God is holy. And when we encounter holiness, it changes us. We're changed. And I want us to look at a story in Isaiah chapter 6 of the prophet Isaiah, what happened to him when he encountered the holiness of God. Let's turn there. Isaiah 6, starting with verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Already we see that God is definitely different than us. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, catch what's happening here. These angelic creatures are not just stating the obvious that God is holy, that he's different. When they repeat this word holy three times, it had huge significance to Isaiah, to the Jewish mindset. Because when you would take a word like holy and repeat it three times, it actually directed their minds to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It reflected the Trinity. But more than that, every time they would repeat that word, it exponentially multiplied the depth of the meaning and the power of that word holy. Verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. I mean, can you picture this scene? Isaiah is standing there. I don't know if it was in the physical temple or if it was just a vision of the temple, and all of a sudden, God shows up in his huge, majestic holiness. And then it says, and smoke began to fill the temple. And I'm beginning to wonder if that's where we got our terminology, holy smokes. I don't know, just thinking, you know. And then this earthquake breaks out because of the presence of God, because of the holiness of God, the place begins to shake. And at this point, Isaiah is like, my mind is blown. But then look at how he responds. Verse five, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Woe to me. Why woe to me? I mean, shouldn't he be excited? He's getting a personal view of what is going on in heaven, but instead, he says, woe to me. I'm finished. I'm done. I'm about to turn into a pile of ashes right now because their belief was, if you see God, you die. Woe to me. I mean, he begins to understand, in the presence of God, he begins to understand the reality of his sinfulness. And it wasn't just a potty mouth. It was the reality of his sinfulness. And think about it. When we encounter the presence of God, it doesn't take long for us to begin to be totally aware of our inadequacies. We don't measure up. Have you ever been in the presence of greatness, even human greatness, maybe a famous person or someone who's extraordinary at what they do in life? I had the opportunity many years ago to meet David Robinson, uh, the former center for the San Antonio Spurs. Many years ago when I was in college, I was working at a steakhouse as a doorman and a valet, and a car pulls up, and out comes David Robinson, all seven foot one inch of him. And he hung out there in the doorway with the other valet and I, and he was talking to us, and he reached out his giant hand to me and shook my hand. And at that moment, I felt about four foot nothing. (laughs) I was in the presence of greatness. But how much more when we're in the presence of a holy, almighty God? I mean, we feel small, right? Our shortcomings become obvious. It's like like not getting the memo that the event was a black tie affair and you show up in jeans and a t-shirt. 
it becomes painfully obvious that you're out of place, that something's wrong. And I think that's how, no, I know that's how Isaiah felt, that he was out of place in the presence of God, and he believes his life is about to end, but look what happens in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is so cool. Just when Isaiah thinks his life is about to go up in smoke, instead, God extends his mercy. He extends his mercy. And Isaiah, instead of being destroyed, he comes away clean. He comes away clean. It's an amazing thought. God extended his mercy. When I was thinking about this this week, this old English word came to my mind over and over again, the word smitten, to smite. Now, that's not a word we use often unless you're quoting a Monty Python film. But smitten is an interesting word because it has two meanings and it's kind of opposite meanings. On the one hand, it means to be afflicted, to be struck down, to be killed. And on the other hand, it means to be totally enamored with, totally captivated by completely in love with. And I think that reflects our worship. When we approach God with a healthy sense of awe and reverence because he is holy, in the process, in the process of being in his presence of holiness, we become enamored by his love. We become captivated by his grace. See, here's the deal. God is a holy God, and in his presence, there could be no sin. We are sinful people by nature, and we're sinful by action. And there is There is nothing in us. There is no power within us that we could change ourselves to be able to have a right standing to become holy so we could stand in his presence. We needed some serious intervention, and God did that. God intervened for us in the person of Jesus. This holy, perfect God ultimately extends his grace and mercy to us by sending Jesus to die for us, to die in our place. And by doing that, he covers our sin and he removes our sin. See, our God is the king who reached out his hand to us. Just like that king in old England, in the time when they would say worship, that commoner couldn't approach the throne. They had to stay at the end of the hallway, at the end of that long red carpet, until the king did something. The king or the queen had to extend their hand, and that gesture said, okay, now it's safe to approach the throne. Then they would approach. See, if the commoner would just casually approach the throne without the extension of the king's hand, he could get his head taken off. It wasn't safe. And our God knew that it was not safe for us in our sinfulness to be in his presence because he is completely pure, completely other. So he made a way for us to not only be in his presence, but to live in his presence. And we sang about it today. We sang, this is love. Jesus came and died and gave his life for us. Let our voices rise and sing for all he's done. Our fear is overcome. Our God is love. I mean, when that commoner stood at the end of the hallway, there was a sense of awe of the king or queen. There was a sense of fear. And when we really begin to understand who God is, we come with that sense of not fear being afraid, but that sense of reverence and awe. So if there's one main thought that I want you to walk away with today, it's this. Worship is our response to God's initiative. It's our response to his initiative. John 3, 16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. And I love how those verses, those famous verses begin. It's all about his initiative and then our response. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Doesn't talk about us. For God so loved the world. In Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us. So that's what worship is. When we begin to understand what he's done for us, our worship is a response to his initiative. And that response, our worship may start as a response of obedience to his command. But even if it begins as a, a response of obedience, it will grow into a response of gratitude as you begin to grasp the magnitude of all that God has done for us. I mean, think of this. What other king left his throne for you? What other king set aside his glory for you, for me? Such a great sacrifice requires a great response. And that great response is worship. And as our worship becomes a response of gratitude for all he's done, we live different, we love different, we worship differently. Paul tells us what that response should look like in Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And again, he says... In view of God's mercy, he doesn't ask us to give our lives, our bodies as a living sacrifice until he reminds us of what God's done. And when we live this way, everything's different. Even our five goals as a church, sometimes we view these goals of living, living what you learn and, and connecting with others, serving where you're gifted, sharing your story, giving of your resources. Sometimes we view those as things that, that we strive for, things that we aim for. But instead, let's begin to view those things as a response. They become as a, resp a response of worship to all that God's done for us. And then even when we begin to grasp this, it changes the way we live. And I want to encourage you this week to, to try to live differently. Look for opportunities this week where you can express worship to God in those everyday moments. Guys, I've got a challenge for you. When your wife this week, married guys in the room, when your wife this week says, hey, honey, will you help me with the dishes? Instead of the response being, Come on, woman, can't you see that I'm watching the game here? Instead, allow your response to be, sure, I'd love to. You choose to help. And I'm preaching to myself here, by the way. So we choose to help. And as we choose to do it, we actually choose to worship through it. And as we're cleaning those dishes, we just whisper a prayer to God. Or thanks, God, thanks for the food that you provide for my family and I. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my family. Guys, the next time you go and wash your car, because, guys, we're kind of material about these sorts of things, instead of it being an act of idolatry because your vehicle defines you, it brings value to your life, instead of that, do it as an act of stewardship, thanking God for the things that he's provided you with. Next time you exercise, do it with thanksgiving that God has given you health and you want to exercise out of gratitude. This week... Go outside. Take some time to go out and enjoy his creation. This is my favorite time of the year, and what an incredible day God has given us today. I'm going home today, and I'm going to power wash my deck because I just want to spend some time outside in his creation. But go for a walk. Rake some leaves and take some moments to just look around. I mean, we go so hard, so fast, so often that we don't just stop. Take some time to breathe in the beauty of his creation. Do that this week. See, when we begin to live this way, everything changes. Our work becomes our worship. Our marriage and relationships become an extension of our worship. Our parenting is another opportunity to worship. Our giving becomes worship. And even our worship through songs begins to take on a whole new meaning. 
So have you ever wondered, why do we do what we do when we come together as a church? Why do we ask you to stand? Why do we sing songs? Why do we clap our hands? Why do some people raise their hands in worship? Well, we're going to talk more about that next week, and I hope you'll come back. But today, we're going to close with communion. We're going to observe communion today up in the chapel as we close. And I want to encourage you to do so. And I don't think that there's a better way for us to respond in worship than to take some moments to reflect on what God has done for us to remember his sacrifice, to remember his broken body and the, the blood that he shed for our forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins. So I encourage you to do that, but first I'm going to ask the band to come back out and they're going to lead us in a powerful song of worship. And this beautiful song captures so well what I've been talking about today. It really captures in the words this initiative of God, how he reached out his hands and what he's provided for us. And I'm going to ask you to respond in worship today. I'm going to ask you to stay Stay in this room and sing with us until the end of the song, and then we'll dismiss you. But I want you to focus in on the words, and I want you to respond in worship. Let's take a moment and pray together. As we bow our heads in prayer, I want to ask you to just take a moment and ask God to search your heart. Just open your heart up to God today and say, is there anything in my life that I have put on the throne of my life? Is there anything or anyone that has taken the place that is rightfully yours? Allow him to show you that today. Or maybe you're here and you're not yet a Christ follower. The greatest act of worship, the greatest response of worship is to say to God, I surrender my life in response to what he's done. To say, God, I, I recognize I'm, ho- I'm, I'm sinful and you're a holy God. I know that there's nothing in my power I can do to change that but I don't have to. You've provided Jesus to take care of that. And today I accept Jesus to be my savior, to change my life. It's that easy. God, we thank you for the reminders that you've given us today, the reminders that we are created in your image. Because of that, we were created to worship you. We're even commanded to worship you. And God, let us submit in obedience to that command. Even as we learned last week, submission protects us So let us respond in obedience, but allow that response to grow into gratitude and to be completely captivated and enamored by your love. Thank you, God, that you were the king who reached out to us in our sinfulness, in our state that we could not stand in your presence, that we should have been killed in your presence. You made a way for us because you love us. Thank you for your incredible love for us. God, open our eyes, open our minds to living differently this week, to worshiping you differently this week. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.